So siblings. How many guys, raise your hands real quick. How many guys have, have siblings or, or, or even if they've passed had siblings? So some of y'all are first or only child. That's all good. Uh, and maybe if you didn't have siblings, maybe you had close relatives that felt like siblings. How many would totally say you had like a sibling rivalry? Anyone? Oh man, you guys are better people than I am. Uh, oh my goodness. Andy Hardy, of course. I mean, you're a quad. Happy birthday, quads, by the way. Um, yeah, I snuck that in there. Uh, so I grew up with two older brothers. And can I be honest with you? Like, they're some of my best friends now, but they were the worst. Like, I, I, I know you're not supposed to say you hate people, but there were times that, like, we borderlined into, like, I dislike you too. Uh, I don't know. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. When I think about growing up with two older brothers, uh, I have some PTSD moments. And maybe some of you can relate to this. I'm the youngest of three boys. Uh, I, I, I think of moments of my, 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 my first bloody nose when my brother jj jumped up on a couch and he jumped like this and he jumped off and gave me the first like it was a really cool flying punch but right to the nose blood everywhere that was the first time my brother matt was babysitting by the way (laughs) congratulations to him i can remember the first black eye i ever got from my brother matt i can remember a saturday morning of jumping on my big brother matt's bed and my brothers did sort of a double bounce and i popcorn up and my head just hit perfectly on this corner desk and i can remember uh going into to uh, the living room and there was blood coming down me and I was like mom what's for breakfast and she's like oh my goodness and then my brother's cowering and hiding I can remember uh, one of the other times that my brother Matt for the first time ever babysat us and my brother JJ and I being so afraid of him that we hid ourselves in uh, a bathroom and locked the door and I felt like it was going to be like the movie The Shining where Matt was just going to like come through the door and here's Johnny like I have some some scary memories with my brothers. Uh, pro tip, if you're a younger sibling, by in the way, uh, one of the, the techniques I learned that was really good was, one, run to mom. But two, if you have a narrow hallway, here's what you do. You punch, you run away, and then what you do is you make sure it's a little dark, and you ball down like this. My brother JJ one time, I kid you not, probably set like a new long jump record in falling over me. And uh, it was amazing. But siblings, right? They give you tons of emotional baggage, tons of real-life scars. And we can probably all be honest. All of us who had a sibling probably at one time or another contemplated, like, could I, could I kill them and get away with it? I mean, let's just, we're among friends, okay? We're among friends. Well, this morning, we're continuing in our series called Genesis, and we're going to talk a little bit about sibling rivalry, murder. What? It's, I'm just being honest with you all. Spoiler alerts. But also, God. And what does it mean to relate to God? We're going to talk about this thing called sin. And so let me tell you about, if you haven't been here, kind of where we've been. Genesis uh, is, is this word that quite literally means beginning. And the very first book of the Bible is called Genesis. And Genesis tells the story of many beginnings. For example, in week one, we talked about how God created the heavens and the earth. And we talked about how when God creates, it's always good. And that we were created in the image of God. That you and I, whether you believe it or not, whether you can really picture that or not, you are a masterpiece created by the God of all the universe. And there's something intrinsically valuable and beautiful about each one of us because we are created in his image that we are sons and daughters and then last week we had a bit of a a turn for uh the worse and adam and eve the first man and wife 
They had one instruction, don't eat from a certain tree. And can you believe it that, of course, they ate from that certain tree and entered into this world not only sin, but also shame. We talked about how shame is this thing where, where, where when we do something wrong and, and we feel bad, that's called guilt. And it's okay to feel guilty when we do something bad because we did something bad. But shame is where we internalize it and we say, I am bad. And we looked at how before the fall that people didn't really experience shame, that it wasn't something that God intended us to experience, that before we were supposed to be, and again, keep your clothes on, but prior to the fall, they were naked. There was nothing hidden. Everything was out in the open, literally and metaphorically. But that when sin came in, then it also brought shame. And shame meant that we had to start hiding things. But we learned that the good news is that Jesus took the fall for all of us. That every single one of us no longer has to hide. That while shame wants to keep us in the dark, it wants to keep us hidden, it wants to make us feel like we are not worthy, we're not valuable, that no one likes us, that, that, that all of these things, that, that grace, that Jesus Christ comes in as the light. And he begins to speak words of life over us and tells us, Not only who we are, but whose we are, that we're his. Now, the story continues to go kind of weird. I'm just going to be honest with you. Okay? So, Adam and Eve, they sin, they get banished from the garden. Now, again, that might sound harsh, but let's be honest. God made the rule, a pretty small rule, really, when you think about it. And there's consequences. In every healthy relationship, there should be boundaries, right? Nod your head yes with me, right? If you're not saying yes, then maybe you are in an unhealthy relationship. Boundaries are okay. And so anyways, they get banished from the garden. They're still told like, hey, I love you. We'll still have relationship. But it's not going to be that deep same presence because of sin entering into this world. And so let me give you a four four sort of little uh, idea behind this. Because some of you already, like, you know some of this story and your mind's spinning. So... Here's what I'm not going to deal with this is this morning, which don't tune out. I'm not going to deal with this morning about, like, were there other people out in the world? We're not going to deal with uh, was Cain and Abel the very first children or not. We're not going to deal with all of the, like, population of earth-type questions. Those are valid, interesting questions, but those are bunny trail questions that I don't think God really cares about as much as we care about, Okay. And so we're going to try to look at the story that is oftentimes referred to as Cain and Abel. And what we've been trying to do in this series is look and say, what did this mean for the original audience reading? And what does this mean for us as Jesus followers, as people who live after the cross, after the empty tomb? What does this mean for us today? So if you have a Bible, you can open up to the very first book of Scripture, Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 1, or... You can check out and things will be on the screen. And here's how we're going to go today. Sometimes we'll read the whole thing and then we'll stop. Uh, we'll read the whole thing and then we'll kind of break it down. And sometimes we do more of what I would call dad showing you his stomping grounds tour of scripture, which basically means we go a little ways. We stop. Dad talks about what's going on out in there, where he used to go to school, the house he grew up in. That's what we're doing this morning. We're going to kind of stop as we go. Okay. So, but I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. One. Things get hot and heavy pretty quickly, so I'm sorry. I'm just reading scripture. Don't blame me. Uh, and two, yeah, there's going to be murder, so let's dive in. All right, so Adam, Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. 
She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. And later she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Okay, so after this fall, we don't know again whether or not they had any children before them, but we make, most scholars would make the assumption that these are the very first siblings, the very first children of Adam and Eve, okay? And so, uh, there's this kind of cool thing here where obviously God in his mercy and his grace allows them to be able to be a part of creation. Again, God is a very creative God. He is a God who is all about creating and it's good. And in many ways, there's aspects of this that we see is really good and that God in his grace and mercy allows us to be a part of that. Okay, so now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruit of his soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought uh, an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel in his offering, but on Cain in his offering, he did not look on look, look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. All right, let's talk about this for a second. So you have two brothers. Cain is the older brother. Abel is the younger brother. One is a farmer. One is a shepherd. They both bring an offering. Now, what's interesting is, as far as we know, there are aspects of Scripture where Scripture is complete, but there's sometimes in different parts of Scripture where there's questions that we may have that Scripture doesn't answer. And can I tell you something when that happens? Even though it's interesting to think about those things, we don't have to go on a bunny trail because Scripture is suffice in telling us what we need to know. But, yeah, one of my questions always becomes, all right, why did they give this offering? As far as we know, there's no place at this point that said God commanded them to do it, at least not in the story that we have. And so why did they do it? You know, there's there's lots of differing opinions. Some would say maybe they uh, thought that, hey, if we do this, maybe there was a, a scene in Scripture that we don't get to see in which God said, give me this and then I'll give you that. Maybe there was a thought that, okay, maybe what we uh, need to do is if we give a certain amount, then God will give us something back in return and things will be good. Or maybe it could also just be out of a sense of, man, God, you're good. We love you. Also, we saw the fact that our parents kind of blew it, so we need to make up for that. We don't really know. But what's interesting is a lot of us probably read this, and that's okay, where we say, well, that seems super unfair. How come Abel's gift was looked at with favor and Cain's wasn't. And, and there's been a lot of misconceptions about that. Some people would say, well, obviously Abel's idea was first. I talked with someone this morning about that. Well, Abel was the one who had the idea to, to give a gift first, and then Cain, you know, followed up with a crappy gift. But in reality, as far as we see in Scripture, Cain actually gave his gift first. Some would maybe say, well, obviously, you know, we talk about like sin and atonement and blood has to be shed. So obviously it's because, well, Abel's had to do with life and blood and and this other one was just grain. But the reality is we see that later on in Scripture that there are different types of offering and both of them are seen as very valid and important. And as far as we can see at this point, there's not really a, a great need for blood to be shed just yet. And so we don't really know exactly everything that was wrong with this. Some of this we have to begin to think through ourselves. Now, my best guess, and we'll see in a minute why, is that Abel, I think, must have given his gift out of a sense of devotion and love. 
that it had to be this outpouring of this relational peace that he had with God. And Cain's, my guess, had far more to do with a feeling of either duty, whether it was told or assumed on his own rights. This idea, too, that maybe if I give something, I'm going to get something back. Scripture doesn't tell us that Cain's gift is bad, but it obviously seems like Abel's gift is better. Here's the lesson I think we learn from this, is that devotion is more important to God than duty. And what I mean by that is just this idea that God is far more interested in having a relationship with you than you just serving him to get things. It's this difference between a transactional relationship versus a relational relationship. A transactional relationship would be very much like when I go to the coffee shop and I give someone money, I'm going to expect that I'm going to get coffee back, right? That's There's going to be a transaction there. Versus a relational relationship would be more like uh, between my wife Hunter and I or or me and my sons, that there's this reality that the relationship is more important than necessarily the things you get from it. In fact, if your marriage is made up upon a transactional piece, your marriage probably isn't going to be in a very good place. If it's all about keeping track of what I get or what you got or this, that, and the other, transactional is all about this idea of fairness. It's all about this idea of kind of keeping score. Now, we learn later on in, in 1 Corinthians that love keeps no record of right or wrong. Love doesn't really keep this record of like this ledger of like, well, I did this, so you need to do this. And so transactional relationship is all about doing things to receive back. Truth is, if many of us were honest, we probably treat our relationship with God far more transactionally than relationally. There's a lot of us, if we were to really look at our own soul, would say we care more about God taking care of every single one of our needs. We just really don't want to go to hell because that sounds like a really bad place and heaven sounds better. And so we do certain things out of duty rather than devotion. And I'm not saying there's not moments in every relationship where duty is the thing that kind of keeps you going. But there's this reality that I think God cares way more about us having a deep love and relationship with him rather than just doing everything that is commanded. Now, a devotion should bleed out into duty. It should bleed out into doing the things that God has called us to do. I mean, it's sort of like the reality that, like, what brought my wife and I together was love. She saw all of this, maybe even lust. She saw all of this and said, yes. But obviously, when we first started dating, I was a medium shirt, and I'm a large shirt, so you can take your guess. And these were just straight fit, and now they're skinny cut, and it's not because they're different jeans. But it's this reality that, yes, the devotion, this, this love is kind of what brings it together. And there are other things that keep things going on. But, yeah, there's this reality that I can't just keep telling her I love her, I think she's beautiful without doing anything, right? That's not real love. I can't say, like, hey, I love you. By the way, I'm going to be gone for the next four months, and good luck on figuring out how to support yourself. No, those things don't really work out. But there is this reality that I think God wants our heart far more than he wants every little action that we do. That the reason that God cares about 
our time, our talent, and our treasure isn't because he's just like, I'm God and I want to keep this track record. It's because those things are a reflection of our heart. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so I think, before we go any farther, for Abel, I think there is far more of a relational relationship that's going on, is my assumption. That his gift isn't necessary in and of itself intrinsically better, but it's that the heart of the giver is better. There's a deeper relationship there with the God, the one who provided it in the first place, than Cain's. That Cain's, it seems like maybe there may have been something where he was giving it not because he really wanted to, but out of a duty. Or maybe that he was giving it with the hopes just that he would get something greater and better. And the truth is, all of us have to examine our own hearts, right? And say, right now, and maybe that's even if you're taking notes, maybe that's a question to write down and maybe try to evaluate. Is my relationship with God far more about transaction or is it more about relationship? And if it's far more about transaction, here, here's the good news. It's nothing wrong with the fact that, like, we want God to take care of our needs. There's nothing wrong with this idea that, yes, we want to go to heaven someday. But there is this reality that, that, that if getting the things and going to the place is more important than who's providing it and who's going to be hosting the party, I think we're missing the mark just a little bit. We have to reevaluate. All right, we continue on in the story. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right... Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now, when I read this text, I don't read this as a God who is a domineering God who is giving this deep commandment. He's not saying, but if you do what's right. He's not like that intense dad who's at like a sports game who obviously is vicariously living sports still through their child who's like, ah! To me, when I read this, it's a really tender, thoughtful, wise counsel father type of thing. And it's interesting, right? Because even at this very beginning, God's intention was for us to have a very up-close and personal relationship where obviously God is God and we are not but that our God was personally vested in a relationship. And so when he says this, it's quite interesting because he's God. He has every right probably to say, listen, you can't, you have no right to, to be mad about what's going on. I'm God. I can do whatever I want. And yet God is really interesting, right? Because in some ways he doesn't say, hey, you feel wrong and everything about that is wrong. He actually validates, hey, you feel angry. Hey, you look downcast. But he gives a point of wisdom, right? If you do what's right. That's, that's where we get this idea of obviously there was something about maybe not the gift, but how Cain was approaching life, how he was doing. There was some sort of lesson that God wanted to teach Cain in this moment. But he gives this warning that I think is true for all of us, whether we like to think it or not. He says this, sin is crouching at our door, right? I mean, do you realize that? We don't really like to sit back and think about that. But every single day, every single moment, not that we have to feel anxious because some of us are already super anxious, but sin is like a lion. It's, it's in hiding, waiting to just pounce upon us. And every single one of us 
the actual sin itself might look a little different. But at the core, every single one of us has this following us. You know, the truth is we don't want to think about this, but sin isn't passively pursuing you. It is aggressively seeking you. It's not just passively. I think we want to think about that um, because we live in a world where we just sort of see what's here. And we don't see not to get all like, whoa, pastor's about to get all like angels and demons. But there is this reality that there's there are dark forces in this world that we don't see. Not tangibly, we may see the, the, the actions that happen. But there's this reality that there is an enemy that is trying his best to throw as much shame upon us as possible. Who's trying to get us to sin, to put this rebellion, this distance between us and God. And God is telling Cain, look what happened to your parents. You must learn to rule this. By the way, if anyone's a nerd like me at home and finds this interesting, do you remember when when God first created the heavens and the earth, he placed all the animals there, do you remember what he told Adam and Eve to do? He told them that they would rule over all of the rest of the creation, that they would rule over it. And it's interesting that God then would tell Cain, listen, this sin is crouching. It is like an animal, a wild beast. But you have the opportunity to rule over it. He's basically saying, listen, I know you are angry, but you have a choice of how you're going to respond, of how you're going to react. But every single one of us has to deal with that every single day, right? Every single day, we have the opportunity to either choose to be really mean to someone or walk away. Every day, we have the opportunity to decide, am I just going to ram into someone with my car or am I going to be a normal human being, right? Let's be honest. We're among friends. Everyone's had those thoughts where you're like, oh my gosh, I just want to run my car into someone. Some of y'all are like, let's call on the pastor. He is crazy. But it's true. This is, this is a big idea. But sin, every single one of us, every single one of us, when I say that word, could probably name the thing that is, is our biggest temptation. For some of us, it's sexual sin. Some of us, it is just sheer selfishness. Some of us, it is this deep fear that, that, that makes us want to hide and avoid everything. For some of us, it's substance. There are so many different things in every single one of us who wants to say, yep, I got this on my own. Yep, I don't have to worry about that. Heard someone, my friend Chuck McCoskey, who runs our recovery ministry, said it was interesting that he heard someone once give a talk claiming that they're an alcoholic who, you know, but occasionally enjoys a few beers now. <laughs> that doesn't work. That doesn't work. The sin, the thing that so deeply and desperately wants to destroy you, is constantly waiting. And it's not just passively waiting around. It is aggressively seeking you. Jesus in the Gospel of John chapter 10, verse 10, just says this. He's talking about the enemy. He's talking about Satan. He says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. He doesn't come to help you. This isn't one of those Stockholm Syndrome things where if you ever heard of that, where, where, where someone gets taken over as a hostage and then eventually the people fall in love with their captor. This isn't one of those things. The thief, the enemy, though you may be tempted with good things like Adam and Eve, 
It's not your friends. It comes to steal, kill, and destroy you. But here's the good news. Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. Now let's get to the juicy part of the story, right? Verses 8. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field where, and while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Now this is obviously, you know, we could probably make some assumptions that there probably had to have been a little bit of a sibling rivalry going on for a while. That's my assumption. Probably someone doesn't kill someone that quickly. There's probably this reality of, of Abel being sort of the favorite child or doing all the things right and Cain just having this moment where finally everything snaps. And I bet if we were all honest, we've all probably had an experience like Cain. Hopefully, probably not that we murdered someone, but where we reacted quickly without thinking and doing just something awful. And this is where the story continues and just sort of gets interesting. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? Cain responded, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Now, let's be honest. God knew what was going down, right? You know, it's interesting how with both Adam and Eve and with Cain, when they royally blow it, it's interesting how every single time God doesn't react immediately with judgment. God gives the opportunity for people to confess, for people to own up to what they did. It again shows this good father. I wish I could say that every time when my three-year-old messes up, that I responded really nicely. But he responds in that way. And then God says this, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from this ground, which opens its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield the crops for you, and you will be a restless wanderer on this earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I'll be, re- I'll be a restless wanderer on this earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And then he put a mark on Cain so no one who found him would kill him. And so Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, just east of Eden. And there's a lot there. And there's a lot of different directions, a lot of different things we could unpack But can I be honest with you, what I think is maybe the saddest part of the story, other than obviously someone getting murdered, is the punishment isn't an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, as the Old Testament would later go on to say. It's interesting how when God responds, he responds really in a gracious way, man, What a terrible way. I can only imagine as Cain is saying these things that this is so hard because he recognizes that he will be hidden from the Lord's presence. And I think he realizes too, which all of us have to realize, is that we aren't hidden from the presence of God because of a choice God has made. 
We become hidden from the presence of God because of choices we make. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. We start by doing sin, but eventually sin does us. That what starts as maybe a small thing can snowball really quickly. And the great consequence, other than obviously obvious ones like possibly murder, like possibly financial ruin, like possibly broken relationships, split families, end of a marriage. That one of the worst things that sin does is it quite literally does build this wall, this distance between us and the Lord. And man, I don't know about you guys, but when I think about the lowest points in my life, It's not just the consequences from my sin that really hurt. It's when I realize how long I took to seek forgiveness, to seek reconciliation with the Lord. It was the missed presence of God in my life. And it wasn't as if God was way distant and not there, but it was I would not allow myself to really acknowledge his presence, to really experience him. It again goes back to this whole idea Uh, For me, most of the time, it was my shame, my sin built a wall between me and God. Because I couldn't imagine God seeing me in that state. I wanted to hide. And sometimes, too, I wanted to respond in a really snarky way like Cain. Now, Cain, what's really sad, too, is he reminds us of this fact that sin sometimes can be something that can go on generation after generation. That from his parents' sin opened the floodgates for Cain's sin. And then what's interesting is that Cain and his descendants go on to become arguably some of the worst people in all of Scripture. People who are known for wandering around, for being really violent, for basically trying to exclude God from any picture of their life. And every single one of us, whether we want to admit it or not, have the potential that if we don't seek God to intervene in our lives, not only will we be distant from his presence, but it's also we could continue to spiral to this point where we're going to do a lot of damage to others. We're going to leave a lot of damage to our spouse, to our children, to our children's children. Now, hear me on this. You do not have to follow through with the sins of your mother or your father. You are your own creation, but there is this reality that the enemy has a foothold, I believe, in unresolved sin in a parent's life that can cycle on over into a child's life. One of the greatest gifts you could give your children, your grandchildren, is taking care of that sin in your life, of seeking the Lord and asking him to do a full operation on you and showing them that God changes lives, that Jesus can make us new. So here's here's the good news. What do we do with this story? I'm sure most of you are sitting here like, wow, this is really depressing. Thank you, Aaron, for letting us know. Um, yep, murder happens. Great. Thanks a lot. And uh, by the way, sin is always out to get me. So now I feel scared and nervous. I need a buddy as I leave this place. What do we do with this? 
Here's what's really kind of cool, kind of neat. If we go to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews says this, Hebrews 12, verses 23 through 24. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Do you remember in this story, God said, your brother Abel's blood speaks to me. This blood shed, the very first time blood is really shed in, 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 in human history, this blood was speaking to God. Now, what do you think it was saying, probably? I think it's probably saying, I want justice. I think it's probably saying, that wasn't fair. I think it's saying, he is the sinner, he is wrong. And for very good reason. I'm just going to be honest. If someone murdered me, I'd probably be kind of mad. I guess I wouldn't really be able to be around to be mad. But I think we could all say, like, if we're honest, like, yeah, we would want justice. And for most of us, if we're honest, we'd probably say, I want vengeance. I want you to do something so bad to them for what they did to me, especially if you were innocent. But here's what's interesting to me about what this scripture tells us from Hebrews is that blood, Abel's blood cried to God to convict a sinner. And later on, Jesus' blood would cry to redeem all sinners. It's this role reversal that we see all the time from the New Testament, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. That every single person, even though Abel, as far as we can tell, was doing things right, was doing things great. And even though he had every right for his blood to cry out for justice, to cry out for some sort of uh, uh, payback, we realize that Jesus later on would be an innocent man. And while Abel's blood would cry out for justice for the one who sinned against him, Jesus' blood would cry out and say, mercy, grace, new life for every single one of us. I'm going to invite the band back out because they're going to play one more song as we close this out. But as we kind of put a, a bow on this story, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? I think there's two big things we learn from this story and that we try to live out. The first is stop living your life as if there's not an enemy. So many of us have moments of sin. We think we're good. And we even have moments maybe where like how God talked to Cain and, and warned us. We have to stop getting to a place where we, we get to a place where we feel like we can control our lives. Where we feel like I'm immune from this sin. And we have to begin to take seriously the fact that there is an enemy out there. And his sole purpose is to try to steal, kill, and destroy you and everything good in your life. And that doesn't mean we have to be afraid, but it does mean that we need to start praying like we actually need God's help. It means that we need to start investing in communities that actually build us up, that protect us. And we have to get to this place where we seek a relationship with God that's not about this transactional piece, but it's this relational piece in which we feel like the love of God is more important than the air that we breathe. That it's not about what we get, but it's just about his presence. 
But the other thing we have to do is start realizing and start sharing this good news that in a world that is so violent, in a world that is so intent on making sure that fairness, and I wouldn't even always call it justice, happens to the nth degree. We need to people be people of grace and love. People who seek to respond by allowing people to know that there is hope. That there is a second chance. That though we may have shed blood and we deserve deep and swift judgment. That the God of all the universe said, though there was judgment that was had for every single one of us, I will take that on for us. Would you guys stand and we're going to close out singing this last song and I'm going to pray. Let's pray. God, I just thank you so much for the fact that God, your son Jesus, his blood that was shed speaks a better word than Abel's. That while Abel's was one of judgment, was maybe even one of retribution, that God, yours is, your son Jesus, his is one of mercy, of grace, of hope, of reconciliation. So God, this morning, I pray that if, if, if some of us are dealing with sin in our life, dealing with shame, God, I pray that we wouldn't have to be afraid of it, but God, we would be ready for it. That God, that we would seek you. God, for forgiveness. God, there is not enough things in this world we can do. We can't give enough money. We can't go to church enough times. We can't serve in so many ways. God, you know, you've told us that God, it's not about just the things that we do that gets us relationship with you. God, it's just giving our whole selves. So God, I pray this morning that we could just offer up our whole hearts. And then God, that out of a devotion for you, out of a relationship with you, we would see our lives, our attitudes, our patterns, our, 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 our relationships change. That, God, we would invest in lives that would be worth what you said, that even though the enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy, that you've came to give us life and life more full, more abundantly, that, God, we could experience that life. So, God, I pray that if anyone has maybe never experienced forgiveness of their sins, if no one's ever had a relationship with you, God, I pray that they would know this morning that they could just reach out and say, Lord, Lord God, I'm sorry for the sin in my life. God, I'm sorry for the things that I've done wrong. I'm sorry for hiding in the darkness. And know that God will forgive you. That his light will be right there. That you'd experience new life. That there's a party going on in heaven for you in this moment. God, I pray for some of us, God, who maybe lately we've allowed sin to creep back into our life. God, I pray that you would keep us far from it. God, I pray that you would give us people, brothers and sisters, to come alongside of us to provide accountability, to help us order our life in a way that focuses us on you, that keeps us far from temptation and delivers us from the evil one. God, would we build a life that allows us most to feel free, feel like we can just be in your presence. God, we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name I pray.